Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the official start of summer here at the Summit Church. Summer is always one of my favorite times here at the Summit Church uh, because I feel like we got a lot of new stuff that begins and things kind of get settled out. I'll be totally honest with you, I don't like the month of May at the Summit Church. Uh, my birthday is in May, May 1st, uh, and I like that, and you should all write that down. Uh, but I don't like the rest of the month of May because our college students leave and you feel like there's kind of a natural lull that hits. But around uh, this first week of June, things get kicked back off. People start settling in. We got a lot of new stuff that happens throughout the summer. We always grow um, by a lot during the summer, or at least we have in the past. It's a great time to invite people to come and, and uh, invite neighbors you've been thinking about because we always choose a message series in the summer that's just really down to earth and practical, you know, kind of in your face in a good way. And uh, this uh, summer, I don't think will hopefully not be any disappointment. It's, it's a series called Home Wreckers. Uh, which I'll tell you more about in a minute, but um, it'd just be a great time for you to, uh, to invite somebody to come along, uh, come along with you and to, and, to, and, to, and to check these things out. Um, before I get going on that, though, let me tell you that this morning something very significant happened here, um, is we also began a pre-launch venue uh, at this, the Briar Creek campus here in the South venue. In the 9 o'clock hour, we had over 200 people that are coming to be a part of the Cary Apex launch. Uh, yes, that is fantastic. Now, in case you're like, oh, what is he talking about? What, I don't get this. Um, all right, what this, this church made a decision a couple of years ago um, that rather than building, just building one big gargantuan building facility that we wanted to get people from all over the triangle to, to, to drive into, we realized that many times it's easier to reach the people that are around you when the church is more local. And so rather than building one big building, we said, hey, stay where you are, serve where you live, let's be the church in that community. And we got a lot of people that are coming in from the Cary Apex area, and so we are, Lord willing, in the fall going to be planting a campus down there, uh, which uh, we are one church that meets in several different locations around the Triangle, and that campus um, will be there. The, the, most of the teaching will be on video. Uh, they'll have their own you know, pastor and worship team that's there, and so that's what's going on. If you're from the Cary Apex region, it might be worth checking out on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock down here as they kind of get their identity set together for the, for the rest of the summer. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. All right, every year for the last several years, I have done a series on relationships. And what I'm going to do this summer is a series called Home Wreckers, which is not about a burrito at Moe's, um, but it is about, a, uh, about the things that corrode our relationships and destroy our homes. Now, every year when we do this, I want to acknowledge the obvious, and that is that for many of you in this room, at any of our campuses, you're not married. Right? And some of you, in fact, we think it's about half of you guys. Uh, for some of you, that's because God hasn't brought the right person along yet. Uh, for some of you, it's, you know, God has brought the right person along, but they won't go out with you. And that's why you're still single. Um, for others of you, it's, uh, it's just, it's, you're single by choice. It just at this point in your life, um, this is not something that you feel like pursuing. And so the bottom line is there are a lot of you in here that are single. And our team works really hard to make this very applicable to you too. And I think you're going to find that whether you're single or married, you're going to get an equal amount out of this because we're talking about principles that the Bible gives us about relationships that, yes, are going to apply to your marriage, but are really going to apply to any relationship that, that you're in. And so I think this will be beneficial for you as well. I'm going to start this series in a very unusual place. And that is, I'm going to talk for a couple of weeks about how God's Word teaches you that you should think about relation. I mean, <laughs> that wouldn't be unusual. To how God's Word teaches you to think about your workplace. And we're going to do that today from the book of Philippians. So if you got your Bible, I want you to open it to Philippians. 
Philippians is one of Paul's letters. It's a, new, it's a New Testament book, and it's right about halfway through the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, G-E-P-C, go eat pork chops, is how I remember that, if you understand the meaning of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians, okay? I want you to turn there in your Bible, and I want you to find it. Now, some of you would ask this question. You say, well, if the series is about home wreckers, why are we going to talk about our jobs? Good question. Here's why. Because for many of you, especially some of you men, your home life is out of whack because your job life is out of whack. Right? I mean, think about it. Think about it. What is the source of most of the stress that you end up bringing into your home? Work. You're dissatisfied in your job. You hate your boss. Money is tight. You're under a lot of pressure. And so you take that out on your family. And for many of you, if you could ever get your job life right, then a lot of issues at home would just end up resolving themselves. The majority of your adult life is spent at work. And I'll just go ahead and acknowledge to you, I think the church has done a patently bad job at teaching you what it means to follow Jesus in the workplace. Sometimes we talk about working for God as if it's like 45 minutes that you volunteer at your church on the weekend. And hear me, I want you to volunteer at your church on the weekend. We need more of you to volunteer at your church on the weekend because this is very important how we reach our community. In the 9 o'clock hour, we had to turn away kids because we didn't have enough kids workers. So yes, we want you to volunteer here. I understand that. It's just that I know that for many of you, your primary ministry is not volunteering for 45 minutes here on the weekend. Your primary ministry is happens, happening in the place where you spend 50, 60 hours a week. And that is in the workplace. I've often pointed out to you that how many miracles are there in the, are there in the book of Acts? 40. That's right. There are 40 miracles. There's like one person that said it. That's right. 40 miracles in the book of Acts. How many of them happen outside of the workplace? 37 of them. 37 of them. So question, where does the power of God most want to manifest itself? Is it here? Is it, is it right here through my preaching? Well, I mean, I hope a little bit, but only about three fortieths of it. 37 fortieths of it wants to happen through you in the workplace. So we want to see you learn how to take the kingdom of God, how to take the power of God out of this place into the workplace, and that's what I want to try to teach you a little bit about in the next couple weeks. Here is specifically the subject for today, and that is the role of ambition in your life. Ambition is often what drives us in our work. Now, ambition on the surface has gotten a pretty bad rap, isn't it? When you say that somebody is a really ambitious person, that usually has a fairly negative connotation. We usually think of, of Michael Douglas in Wall Street, greedy, proud, cutthroat, overly competitive. And so let me be really clear, right? The Bible in no uncertain terms tells you that selfish ambition is wrong and sinful. Um, James chapter 3 verse 13 tells you that selfish ambition is the source of all kinds of bad sins in your life. Bitterness, jealousy, exploitation, constant dissatisfaction, and that over-competitive nature that some of you live with that just makes you really annoying to be around. Can I get a, an amen from some wives out there, all right? Yeah, that overly competitive nature that means you're always competing. So Jeremiah 45.5 tells you, do you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. But see, there's another kind of ambition that is good and right. It was ambition that led David to expand the borders of Israel. It was ambition that led Solomon to build the temple. It was ambition that led Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It was ambition 
that led Paul to extreme measures to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul even said this, Romans 15, 26, I have made it my ambition to take Christ where he's never been named. And I'm going to work harder at that than anybody works at their job. The gospel writers say about Jesus that he was more ambitious than anybody who ever lived. John chapter 2, verse 17 says about Jesus, zeal for God's house had eaten him up. You can translate that word zeal as ambition. Ambition for the house of God had eaten him up. Right? Yes, selfish ambition has caused greedy executives to exploit the poor and ruin our economy. Selfish ambition has driven some dictators to drive nations into war. Selfish ambition has made some men and women destroy their families and neglect their children. But in our reaction to that, we don't need to get rid of all ambition. We need to redeem ambition. We need to rescue it. We live in a world that is desperately in need of people who should be ambitious for the right things. We live in a world that is desperately in need of people who ought to be ambitious for the right things and for the right reasons. And let me just get off on a little soapbox here, okay? All right? I hate, I hate the emasculation of our society that is going on right now in many ways. Our society has gone to war against a few traditionally male values. Um, and probably the ultimate example of this is one cited in a book by James Dobson bringing up boys about one California school system, one county, that decided that they were no longer going to allow the little boys to stand up when they urinated. Because, because if they stood up when they peed, that would kind of communicate some sort of dominance and sense of superiority, so they needed to sit down. Right? That is idiotic, okay? Well, in the same way, people have said, well, ambition, look at ambition. Ambition is what causes wars. It's what you know, created the mess on Wall Street. So we just need to get rid of all ambition. Yes, selfish ambition is bad. That's exactly why we need men and women with the right ambitions for the right reasons. So let me be real clear. The goal of this sermon is that you become more ambitious, not less. That ambition that some of you have burning in your heart that has made you such, such, such a success at your business, that's a gift from God. And I just want to see you have it for the right reasons, for the right purposes, and with the right motives. We're ambitious as a church. When we say that we want to plant 1,000 churches by 2050, that's ambitious. When we say that we want to see the kingdom of God taken into the most hurting places in our city, the homeless, orphans, prisoners, unwed mothers, high school dropouts, that's ambitious. When we say there are 1.7 million people in Raleigh and we want every one of them to have a chance to hear the gospel and to see it up close before they die, that is ambitious. And God has told us to be ambitious for those things. Zeal for God's house in Raleigh-Durham ought to eat us up the same way it ate Jesus up. One more thing on this. Don't think, by the way, that just because you're not an aggressive type A firstborn, that this doesn't apply to you. If you have goals of any kind, then you are ambitious, right? Because we all are ambitious in our own way to see our goals met. Some of you want to be married, and so you're ambitious for that. Hopefully not overly ambitious, because then you're creepy, all right? But, but you're, you're ambitious to get married. Some of you are ambitious to have a family, you have a strong desire to have a family. Some of you want your kids to turn out well, and so you're ambitious in your own way for that. Uh, some of you want uh, to have a comfortable life, so you're ambitious to get creature comforts around you. Some of you are ambitious to not have any conflicts in your life, and so you work hard at that. Unless you have no wants, no needs, and no desires, then you are ambitious. And if you have no wants, no needs, and no desires, then you are dead. 
And if you are dead, then we're going to be ambitious to get you buried. So either way, this sermon is going to end bad for you, all right? So Paul displays the good kind of ambition in the book of Philippians, the good kind of ambitions. And I want to show you, try to show you what his ambition looked like, and then give you some litmus tests that you can take along the way as we go through this to, to you can test yourself to see whether or not your ambition is the good kind or the bad kind. I read a book last year called Rescuing Ambition, which I want to commend to you. Uh, we actually had them for sale at our campuses today, but they sold out, so you'll have to wait till next week. Um, but it's a book that I, 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 it was very instrumental in my life because this is something that I have struggled with so much. Um, and, and a lot of what I'm going to teach you today is inspired by and, and comes out of the things that I've learned in this book. I would encourage you to get a copy of it. Uh, you can get it off our, inter- our, our, our internet. Our, um, we don't own the internet. Um, uh, Al Gore does that. Uh, we, we, uh, you can get it off of our blogs uh, this week, or you can just pick it up at your campus next week. I would encourage you to add it to your vacation reading. I know some of you are pretty stoked about you know, getting through the Harry Potter series before the last movie comes out, uh, and that's fine. Some of, you, uh, some of you, after May 22nd, the whole Jesus is coming back prediction, you're working your way back through the Left Behind series right, you know, this summer. That's fine, too. Um, but I hope that you will add this to it because I think it'd be a great way um, for those of you that'll be intrigued by what I'm saying. So you could, you could try to pick that up um, when it's available. Um, all right, background of the book of Philippians. Background of the book of Philippians. Things are not going that well for Paul. Paul's career has taken a pretty substantial turn for the worse and not a really good time in his career. He's, he's later on in his career as an apostle. And you know, by this time, things really ought to have settled out. This is when you ought to start enjoying the fruits of your labor. But Paul, when he's writing the book of Philippians, is in prison. People are telling lies about him. Other people have taken credit for his work and then trashed his reputation. I mean, that's, I mean, you ever had that happen? I mean, it's bad enough when somebody takes credit for your work, but then when they trash you in the process, have you ever had that happen to you? That's what is happening to Paul. Somebody has taken credit for what he did and then is tearing him down to the people that he spent so much time with. And in Philippians, he's unable now to be with those people that he loves. This Philippian church is in a lot of danger because there are people who are trying to corrupt the doctrine that Paul taught them. And they are literally being persecuted. And like anybody who has children, he wants to be with those that he loves and he can't because he's shut up in prison. Have you ever had that situation where somebody you loved was in danger and you wanted to protect them, you wanted to provide for them, but you just couldn't for whatever reason? I remember the um, uh, first year uh, that I was married, I, I was speaking at a youth camp down in, in Florida, and at uh, 1.30 in the morning, my, my, my cell phone rings, and my wife, who, you know, before we have kids, obviously, she's at home by herself, and she is convinced that somebody's in the house. This is not just like I got spooked, but I, I think I hear somebody walking around downstairs. Now, I am two hours from the nearest airport. There's no possible way that I can, I, I can get there. That feeling of hopelessness, like, I want to protect her. My new wife, I want to protect her, but I can't. That's how Paul feels about this church right now. His ambitions are good ones. He wants to protect them. He wants to help them, but he just can't. And the dangers that they're facing are no, no less real than what my, my, my wife thought that she was facing. Turns out it was nothing, or at least the person left. I, I don't know, because you know, nothing ever came of it. But the, the whole point I'm making to you is that Paul is in some pretty discouraging circumstances. His ministry is not surging. It's lagging. His ambitions, which he thought were good ones, are being unfulfilled. That's when most of us grow discontented, right there, isn't it? When our ambitions are being unfulfilled and a lot of things are not turning out like we 
hoped they would or like we expected that they would. And so you think, well, by now, I ought to be in this leadership position. By now, my career ought to be here. By now, I should have been making this much money. At this age, I should have been married. At this age, I should have kids. I should have traveled here. I should have accomplished that. And listen, those are not wrong desires. In fact, many of those desires show that you're growing spiritually to desire leadership positions, to desire success, to desire marriage and children. Those are good God-given desires. But it is, listen, it is how we respond when our ambitions are disappointed that reveals whether they were godly or selfish ones. It is how we respond when our ambitions are disappointed that reveal whether they are godly or selfish ones. Take a look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Philippians 4, 11, where we'll begin. Paul says, I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation, whatever means in prosperity or in prison, in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. When you abound is when you land the contract. It's when you get the raise. It's when you're engaged. It's when you're pregnant. Right? Brought low is when you face failure. You get overlooked for the promotion. You're still single, and all your friends have gotten married. You, you still don't have grandkids. You are knocking on the door of your dreams, and it just won't open, and your, your knuckles are bloody from having knocks for so hard and so long, and you're looking at heaven saying, God, why? Why? What did I do wrong? How come this door hasn't opened for me? Verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, place, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I, I love that phrase, I have learned. You want to know why? Because I tend to think Paul was like some, some, something different that he just kind of got this stuff thrown in when he got saved. Like he just came out content. You know, and, and, and you think, wouldn't it be awesome if that's how we fix like discontentment in our lives? Is It's like, a, like an email attachment. You just point, click, and apply. And it comes in and it fixes everything in your computer. Like those little Microsoft updates they sent out like every other day um, to fix the bugs on your computer. Um, which, but I read the greatest thing the other day. Um, Bill Gates made a statement that if the car industry had kept up with the computer industry, that we would all be driving cars that went safely 150 miles an hour and got 200 miles to the gallon. And one of the, the car executives said, well, yeah, but who wants to drive a car that crashes every 45 minutes? Um, which I thought was helpful uh, <laughs> to make. But, but wouldn't it be awesome if that's how you fixed the discontentment bug in your life is you just the Holy Ghost just dropped off a little update package that update, updated your spiritual life and bam, you're content. That would be awesome, but that's just not how it works. Not for you, not for me, not for Paul. Paul said, I have learned this. I learned it. And then he says it was a secret. He not only tells us just to be content. He didn't just tell us what to do. Like, be content, get on with it. He says there's a secret to this. And then he gives us a verse that is the most misquoted verse in all of the New Testament. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Basketball players quote this verse before they take a foul shot. So you're going through your routine, you spin the ball backwards, you kind of like, you know, I can do all things through Christ me, and you shoot your shot. Paul's not talking about foul shots here. Paul is talking about the ability to be content in all things. Scholars say that that word that's translated through, through him, really ought to be translated in him. He's saying, I have found in Christ both the resources to succeed 
and the resources to have my dreams disappointed. What Paul is showing you about himself is pretty remarkable here. Paul is disappointed, genuinely disappointed, but he hasn't grown bitter and he hasn't given up on his dreams. You see, a lot of times after we've had a dream disappointed, we, we, we try to pay God back. We're like, all right, fine, God. You want to disappoint that dream? I'll just settle for mediocrity. That's what you want, right? I'm just going to give up on my dreams and I don't pay you back. Or sometimes we shift into like a self-protection mode where we're like, well, you know what? Even if we never verbalize this, we're like, fine, I'll just aim at nothing from now on because I'm pretty sure I can hit nothing. And that's fine, God. That, if that's what, I just don't want to let myself down again. I don't want to get disappointed again. I don't want to let other people down again. So you settle. There are some of you in this room that have settled in your dating life. You settled in your career. You settled in your ministry. And the warp part of this is you think somehow that's godly. It's not godly. Paul had not given up on his dreams. He is a man that is disappointed in his ambitions, but he has not given up on his dreams. He faces disappointment without disillusionment. He is genuinely sad at his losses, but he is not in despair. He is hungry for more, yet happy with less. He wanted to preach to large audiences, but he was content to sit in prison. He's not sitting there in prison angrily brooding over the question, God, by now I was supposed to be here. God, what's wrong with me? God, what's wrong with you? He's not doing that. Paul is not taking it out on those around him either. Isn't that what, what we do a lot? A lot of us are disappointed at work, and so we take it out on our families, trying to get them to fill in that gap in our heart that's been left by the disappointment we faced in our careers. You're going to see in the book of Philippians that the Philippians, had, they'd let Paul down in some ways. And Paul is not writing them from prison going, seriously, guys, seriously, after all that I've been through for you, this is how you repay me, this is how you respond. No, he's overflowing with grace and forgiveness to them. He's not taking it out on them. It is how we respond when our ambitions are disappointed that reveals whether they are godly or selfish ones. How do you handle it when you don't make the million dollars? And even more than that, you, don't even, you can't even hardly make ends meet this year. When you're not married, when you don't have kids, when you didn't get into the program, how do you respond? You get mad at God? You give up on your dream? You despair about yourself? You take it out on others? Paul could face disappointment with contentment because his ambitions were godly ones, and they were godly ones because they were rooted in Christ. So here's the question. What does it mean to have your ambitions rooted in Christ? In Christ is one of those phrases that, to be honest, to a lot of you sounds like spiritual mumbo-jumbo, doesn't it? I'm in Christ. What does that mean? I don't know, but I'm in him. Really? I mean, is that, you, you, like, you wake up you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning strumming Chris Tomlin tunes on the harp you have beside your bed. That's in Christ. I, you're like, I don't know what it means. I'm going to show you four things that Paul meant by in Christ from the book of Philippians. These are not what J.D. thinks it means to be in Christ. These are what Paul is explaining to you in Philippians that he means by that phrase, in Christ. Okay, here we go. Number one, Paul had found his approval in Christ. Paul had now found his approval in Christ. This is in chapter 3, beginning about verse 5. Paul starts going through a list of his accomplishments. It would be kind of like his resume or his CV for those of you in the academic world. And it's pretty impressive by anybody's standard, especially for somebody in that day. Paul's like, you know, I came from the right family. I went to the right school. I had the top job in the country, most sought after job. I was a rising star in that job, and I was famous. 
And then he says this, verse 8. And I count everything, everything that you would have drooled for, everything you've worked for, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. That word rubbish, by the way, scholars tell us is a really interesting word. It's the Greek word skubala. Say the word skubala. Say skubala. <laughs> you just cussed in Greek. Skubala is a word that, and this, uh, this is not gratuitous crassness, okay? Skubala is a word that is very rough, and it really ought to be translated something like crap. Actually, you could probably translate it as something else, but I don't feel comfortable saying that. All right? Paul says those Harvard degrees, that Pulitzer Prize, that Congressional Medal of Honor, that $200,000 a year salary, that national championship, it's all crap compared to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus gives my soul more fulfillment and more significance than I could have found in anything I obtained. And Paul says, verse 9, Jesus was not given to me because of what I've accomplished. He didn't give it to me because I earned it or I deserved it. In fact, I did not deserve it. Jesus was not a reward for my merits. He was given to me as a gift of God's grace. Paul's personal ambitions were fulfilled in knowing Christ. Paul's fulfillment came not from what he accomplished, but from who he belonged to. And because of that, if he died in seeming failure in prison with a trash reputation, with his work being undone, he can personally be content with that. Can you say that about your prison? Some of you right now are in a prison of singleness because you don't want to be there. Some of you are in a prison of low-wage earning. Some of you are in a prison of non-promotion. Some of you are in a prison of not being a place in ministry where you want to be. Can you from your prison say, Christ is enough for me? Can you say, even if I never get out of this prison, because Paul didn't know if he was, even if I never get out of this prison, Christ is enough for me. What do you need in addition to Jesus to be happy, you idolater? What do you need? If the ministry doesn't succeed, if you don't get married, if you don't have kids naturally, I'm not telling you to give up, by the way. Paul didn't give up. You're going to see it. Paul, I mean, he never gave up on his ambitions for a big ministry and a prosperous church. He was hungry for more, but he was satisfied with less. At the end of the day, can you be satisfied in Christ as your treasure and resolve yourself to God's will, whatever it is? Because see, here's something Paul learned. Very important. If you don't feel that way, then you're never going to be satisfied no matter what you obtain. It's always going to be right beyond you. You'll never get to that place in your job where it satisfies you. Your marriage, your family, all the stuff that you think will complete your life and make you happy, it won't. Like Dave Harvey says in this book, Rescuing Ambition, a completed job does not equal a completed life. I've often told it to you this way. Some of you are going to spend your entire lives climbing the ladder of success ambitiously, only to find out when you get to the top that it's been leaning against the wrong building. What you're looking for is in Christ. And some of your homes are wrecked because you're taking out that dissatisfaction with your job on your family. Here's how it sounds. Man, to his wife, I need affirmation. How come you don't affirm me more? How come you don't respect me more? And wife, you probably do need to affirm him more. You should probably write that down, affirm him more. We'll get to that later. But your problem, sir, is that you're not satisfied in Christ, and that's why you crave your wife's affirmation so much. 
That's why you can't handle people opposing you at work. That's why you can't handle being criticized. That's why you can't handle when people don't give you credit because you're not satisfied in Christ's opinion of you, and so you crave the affirmation and approval of others. And I speak, by the way, as a certified expert on that. Because when I start walking around, I start feeling like somebody needs to affirm me and quick. Somebody needs to tell me how awesome I am and make it now. When I have that thought, the second thought that usually comes into my mind is, why is Christ's approval not enough for you? Why do you so crave everybody else's approval when you have the highest approval of the only one whose opinion really matters? Some of you men are, are driven to work at the expense of your families because you're trying to find a satisfaction and an approval in your work. So you're working, 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 and chasing, 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 and you're trying to prove yourself what you need that satisfaction and identity your soul craves is not a found by achieving, achieving a certain position or making a certain salary. It's given as a gift in Christ. Some of you women have made some devastatingly bad decisions for your family and your children because you've been driven by an ambition to prove yourself and it's caused you to harm yourself and your family because you needed a validation somewhere else. I'm not telling you one size fits all. I'm not telling all of you you gotta set up your family like mine. I'm just telling you, some of you, your lives and your homes are being wrecked by selfish ambition because what you should be looking for and have settled in Christ, you're looking for somewhere else. It's cravings of selfish ambition only end in Christ. Knowing him as the greatest treasure, walking with him the greatest pleasure, living out his plan for your life, the weightiest significance. Now, by the way, I hope you ladies will give me a little grace here. I'm telling you, sometimes I speak as a man to men. I'm not saying you don't have any, many of the same struggles. I know that you do. But I hope you'll allow me a little grace just sometimes to talk to the men. Um, my wife's actually going to help me out in this series this summer. So a couple times she'll get up and, and get in all the ladies' face. And that's going to be awesome. Um, but so when I'm up here, I might wait a little bit toward the men. But women, your day is coming. Number two, Paul knew. Number two, Paul knew what he deserved. Paul knew what he deserved. This is in chapter two. I'll summarize there halfway through chapter two. Paul says, I now view myself and what is happening to me. I view it through the lens of what I deserve. You see, another secret of contentment and unfulfilled ambitions is understanding what you deserve because the heart of discontentment is not getting what we think we deserve. When you complain, when you complain, which for some of you is eight or nine times a day, eight or nine times an hour for some of you, when you complain, what is going on is you were saying in your heart, I deserve better than I have right now. I deserve better than I have right now, and I'm not getting it, so I'm going to complain about it. Some of you are going to think this is over the top, but it's not. What does the gospel teach you about what you deserve? According to the gospel, what do you deserve? All right, starts with H, rhymes with L. Hell. And when you understand that what you and I really deserve is that, that it changes our attitude to everything that we actually have in life. I'm trying to teach this to my kids right now. And I know some of you are going to think this is over the top, but I really want them to learn this. I had this conversation with my five-year-old yesterday. You could ask her, my five-year-old, Allie. Allie, you're complaining again. What does complaining show that you think you deserve? Allie, better things than I have. Allie, what do you really deserve? Hell. <laughs> so what does what you have now equal? Grace. 
You might think that is over the top, but that is exactly how the Bible teaches you to see your life. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it this way, if we have not what we desire, well, we have not, excuse me, we have more than we deserve. You think you don't have what you deserve. You're right, and you can thank God for that. And when you realize that, all of a sudden, you find it remarkably easier to be content. There's kind of a, it's kind of a Disney-ish, Oprah-ized version of content, soapbox number two, all right, that gets passed off a lot of times as the secret of contentment. So let me just deal with it real quick. It basically goes like this. I'll give you the Christian version of it. So here you are, you're in your job, and you're not satisfied because you can't drive the cars your friends drive, and you don't live where they live, and you're just dissatisfied, and you think, God, how come you haven't given me more? And then you go on a mission trip. And you go on the mission trip, and when you get overseas, you start to see people who really live without anything. And you're talking with some of these little kids, and they're like, whoa, you got food in your cabinet? You got, like, extra food that you can up, and you put it, you know, and you've got one of those little grindy things that grinds up food you don't eat? Are you serious? You got a whole house just for your car called a garage? We have, like, 19 people that live in one room in our house. Seriously? Then you go to a leper colony, and you see people who are in real deprivation, and you're like, oh, my life is not so bad after all. And you come back, and you're just content with what you have because you've seen how some other people live, right? I guess there is a little truth in that. But here's the problem with that. It always wears off like that. Two weeks tops. That's the mission trip buzz. And you come back, and then you're bitter again because you're not driving as nice a car as a friend you have as. The Bible never, ever tells you to gain contentment by comparing your situation with somebody else's. It tells you to gain contentment by comparing your situation with what you deserve. And when you understand what it is you deserve, then everything suddenly begins to look like grace. And you will say with Thomas Watson, if we have not what we desire, well, then I have more than I deserve. The fact that I woke up this morning anywhere else but hell is God's grace to me. The fact that I have family, the fact that I am breathing, the fact that I am healthy, whatever I have, wherever you are, it is grace. Number three, Paul trusted God's control over all things. Paul trusted God's control over all things. This is chapter four, verse six. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, anything, ladies, Does anything include your children? Yes. Does that mean it is wrong for you to be worried about how your kids are going to turn out? Yes, it's what it means. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, not complaining, but with thanksgiving, which means that the undergirding everything that you say to God is this sense of overwhelmed thanksgiving at the grace that he's given to you. With thanksgiving, then let your request be made known to God. Can't you hear Paul? Paul is living this verse. Paul is concerned about his church. He loves them. He wants to be with them. And he's saying that everything that God has told me to lay at his feet, that includes my church. That includes my children. It includes those I love. It includes my deepest dreams and desires. I have laid them at Jesus' feet, and I am now resting in what he will do with those things. Now, again, Paul hadn't given up. Paul wouldn't apathetically sit there in prison just submitting to the will of God, going, oh, whatever, you know, I can't change anything. I'll just give up. I'll just quit caring because it's not like I can do anything. That's called Buddhism or fatalism. It's not Christianity. Paul hadn't given up. He, 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 he keeps asking boldly. He keeps praying ambitiously for those that he loved. 
He'd work ambitiously for them. And then he would rest in God's loving sovereignty. You see, Christianity is neither fatalism nor is it thinking that it all depends on you. What it is is working as hard as you can, praying, never giving up on your dreams, but at the end of the day laying it at Jesus' feet and saying, you know what, you're in control and I can trust everything with you and it's, it's good, it's fine to be in your hands. And I'll trust your loving sovereignty. And when you do that, Paul says, when I do that, he says, verse 7, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It passes all understanding means sometimes you can't figure out how it's going to work out. But you know what? Jesus can because he's all-knowing and all-powerful. And then he says, and those will guard your, your heart and your mind with a sense of peace. And think about how real of an analogy that was for him. He's in prison with two guards on either side. He's like, here they are to keep danger out and to keep me in. He said, there's some guards that ought to stand on the sides of your heart, and they'll keep your heart at peace, and that's when you understand that there is a loving God who is doing exactly what God said that God would do, and that is sovereignly working all things for his glory and for your good. Dave Harvey says it this way in Rescuing Ambition, there is no peace in life until we're convinced that our place is his choice. There is no peace in life until we're convinced that our place is his choice. Some of you have an irrational fear of the death of your spouse. Some of you have an irrational fear of your spouse leaving you. You have an irrational fear about your children. You have an irrational fear about going bankrupt and, and your career falling apart. And you're never going to get over those fears until you understand that there is a loving God who sovereignly holds all things. And at the end of the day, after you've worked and after you've prayed, you laid it at his feet and you can trust that it is sovereignly directed in his hands. Number four. Paul knew that God sometimes ordains our suffering so that we can know him more and so that he can be glorified through us. This is Philippians chapter 1. Paul is describing in Philippians 1 how his imprisonment is actually leading to the spread of the gospel. People were talking about it. People were like, you hear about Paul? Yeah, he's in prison. What for? Like he's talking about Jesus. And Paul's like, you know what? Even in my imprisonment, it's making the gospel go out. And so verse 17, look at this. Some preach Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, now what comes next? Here, here's what comes next in J.D.'s prayer. Come on, God. Why aren't they in prison? They're the ones doing it with a bad heart. I'm doing it with the right heart. I should be pre preaching at the conference. They ought to be in prison. Paul says, well, what then? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed... And in that, I'll rejoice. Here's a very serious, a very somber question for you to consider. What if what is best for the kingdom of God is not best for you personally? Are you willing for God to do what is not best for you if it's best for his kingdom? Can you rejoice in that and say, Christ is glorified and the gospel magnified, so I am satisfied? You study the ministry of John the Baptist. There's another guy. John the Baptist, the, you know, the, you know, the cousin of Jesus that preceded Jesus' ministry, that dude's ministry started off with a bang. You ever notice that? I mean, that dude got popular like that. Everybody from all over Israel is following him on Twitter. He's like the big conference speaker. He started a whole new fashion line, the whole camel hair thing. You know, he, was, he was vegan before it was cool, eating, well, I guess he was eating locusts. That's not vegan. But he was, uh, he, he was eating wild oats, and he started all this stuff, and he was popular. That's not how his ministry ended. You ever seen this in the Bible? Ends with him in prison. Nobody's really paying him any attention anymore. He gets beheaded. As he sees how his ministry's ending, not with fulfillment, but with failure, it seems. You ever see what he says about it? 
John chapter 3, verse 30. He, Jesus, must increase, and I must decrease. Same thing here. Paul was decreasing, but he trusted that God was doing what God said he would do, and that is constantly magnify his name, even if it wasn't best for Paul's personal ministry ambitions. Question, are you willing for that to happen to you? Are you willing for that to happen to you? Biography of Charles Simeon, I read this recently. Charles Simeon, if you know anything about church history, you'll recognize that name as kind of a famous pastor of a, a while ago. Charles Simeon, later in his career, wasn't super old, but just, you know, he, he was getting a little older, and he, he had a health issue that made him step down from his pulpit for eight months. During that eight months that he was taken to recuperate, it was a temporary thing that another younger pastor, an associate pastor, who preached in his place named Tom Thomason. Well, Thomason turned out to be an even more effective preacher with this congregation than Charles Simeon had been. So when Charles Simeon gets better after the eight months and is ready to come back into the pulpit, he's now facing this issue of, of this, th th this younger guy is so much more effective at leading this congregation than I am. What do you do in a situation like that? I mean, I, I was thinking, well, what if that happens to me? I'm like, what if, what if it becomes apparent that God has selected somebody else, that somebody else is even more effective at leading the church than I am? I mean, is that the time that Charles Simeon plays that card and says, listen, pal, I've been here for 30 years. I've built this thing through my blood, sweat, and tears. You can sit down and wait for me to die, and then you can have it. Charles Simeon, his biography says this, and now I see why I was temporarily laid aside, and I bless God for it. He, talking about this younger guy, he must increase even if I must decrease. You willing for that to happen with you? By the way, you may not be able to see it. Paul couldn't. Paul couldn't see how him sitting in prison, he was writing a letter we would study 2,000 years later. He didn't know that. He just knew that God was doing what God said God would do, and that is sovereignly directing all things for his glory and Paul's good. How about this one? What if God appointed your failure to bring about his glory? We all dream about bringing God glory through our success. We're like, oh, come on, God. You make me rich, you, God, you, you bring me success, and I will give you glory. Nobody dreams about their failure. Oh, God, what I want to do is I want to be a failure for you. I want to just fail, I want to fall on my face and then glorify your name. No, I don't say that. But Paul knew, Paul knew that even though he worked for success, there were times that God appointed failure. Philippians 3.10, he said, because there is an intimacy that I can know of Christ in the midst of suffering that I can't know in prosperity. And there is a power I can know having gone through the cross. It's called the resurrection. There's a power that I can know having gone through the cross that I couldn't know if I never went through it. What if God allows you to suffer? What if he allows you to fail sometimes because he wants you to know a certain kind of Jesus and he wants you to know a certain power of Jesus that you couldn't know if you didn't walk through that valley of crucifixion? You see, there is a God who loves you so much that sometimes he'll ordain the hunger of your body to save your soul. And we need to give up this idea. Soapbox number three. We need to give up this idea that God's plan for everybody is always smooth road, big success, best life now. Oh, really? You better than Jesus? Really? He died by crucifixion. Oh, you better than John the Baptist? He died in prison, beheaded. You better than Paul? He died in prison, beheaded. Dave Harvey says it this way, let us not accept the world's definition of success that says always abounding and increasing and has no room for he must increase even though I must decrease. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, contemporary theologians, says it this way, 
the world's idea, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. So yeah, you know how to glorify God in your prosperity, but the litmus test of ambition is how you face disappointments. Paul could face disappointment because his deepest desires, his identity, his quest for fulfillment and significance had been met in Christ. His life was not defined by what he did, but by whose he was. And he knew that God was sovereignly in control of all things, working them out. So he could say, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. He's writing that from a prison. He's not saying that from a conference. He's not writing that after having experienced his greatest year of ministry and his book sales are off the chart and everybody's trying to get him to come speak at their conference. He's writing from a prison when everybody's turning their back on him and his ministry's falling apart. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. You see, your discontentment, your fear, your jealousy, your strife are like, and let me use this analogy that I've used before, are like St. Augustine's, this is his analogy, those things are like the smoke from a fire that'll lead you back to the altar of your selfish ambition. Discontentment, fear, strife, jealousy, that's like smoke from a fire that will lead you back to the altar of your selfish ambition. You know what you ought to do? You ought to let your discontentment, wherever it is right now, you ought to follow the trail of that smoke and you ought to let it lead it back to you to the places that you have substituted some ambition for Christ. It, it ought to work for you like that find and search um, function on your computer. You ever use that when you realize that you've like misspelled a word 95 times in the paper and so rather than go back and find them all, you just you type it in once and it corrects it everywhere. You ever do that? Or like when you've written a thank you note to somebody and you want to switch some, the, you know, the, the new person's name in it and keep the same note. You've never done that, have you? Um, so you just find and replace, you know, it's a new note. Um, you ought to, you ought to, you're like a lot of computer analogies today, JD. Yes, I've had a bad week with my computer and so it's fresh on my mind. Um, you ought to let discontentment be like the find and replace engine on your, your computer. That wherever there's discontentment, that's a signal to you that there's something, to push the analogy probably too far, misspelled in your spiritual life. That there is something that is not right. And you ought to, wherever you find discontentment, that's where you'll find selfish ambition having replaced godly ambition and where you've found a dream and an idol that has displaced Christ. And what can happen is God can use that to transform your selfish ambitions to godly ones because they're rooted in Christ. If you come to this church, you've heard me say before that there was a defining moment in my life a few years ago when I was praying for our church and praying that God would do something in our church that would just be unbelievable. That you know, God would use us to reach the city, that there would be a movement of God in our church like never before. Now you guys know, I mean, this is our church, yes, but it's my job. So just like you want to succeed in your job, I want the church to succeed because that's success in my job, right? So in the midst of praying that God would do this, it was one of those times that the Holy Spirit spoke to me, not audibly, but just as clearly. And the words of the Holy Spirit whispered in my heart were these. Okay, what if I say yes? And what if I cause there to be a movement in the city of Raleigh-Durham that is something like nobody has ever seen? What if I transform Raleigh-Durham for my glory? What if I, from Raleigh-Durham, send out church planners all over the world to unreached people groups all over the world? What if I do everything that you are hoping for 
And what if I don't use you or your church in the process? What if it's somebody else? Are you willing to say, he must increase, even if I must decrease? And in my heart, I knew that the answer to that was, no, I wasn't okay with that. And that began a process for me that is still going on. I'm not through with it yet by any means. But of God tearing down this ambition that I've had for our church that is selfish ambition and begin to replace that, see, with ambitions that are for you and for the good of the God's kingdom, even if it doesn't involve me. It's like, I think about this a lot, King Solomon. King Solomon, wisest king who ever lived. If you grew up in church, you know the Sunday school story. You've all probably heard this if you grew up in church. The Sunday school story that God appears to Solomon at the beginning of his ministry, at the beginning of his reign, and says, Solomon, what do you want? What, is, what, is, what does Solomon say? I want to be wise. And we're all impressed that he didn't ask for riches, he asked for wisdom. But what we don't notice is why he asked to be wise. You ever see this? It's a little phrase right after the word wise. Make me wise for the purpose of this great people. I'm not asking to be wise for myself. I'm not asking that I be wise so that everybody will know that I'm the wisest king who ever lived. I'm asking because it's going to take wisdom and insight to lead these people. And see, there's a lot of times that I've prayed for wisdom and insight and vision as a pastor, but it's been about me. God, make me wise, make me insightful, make me great for my sake. But when I can say no, not for my sake, make me wise, give me insight and success as a pastor, not for me, but because these people need somebody to preach the word of God to them. And these people need somebody to help put vision out there so they can reach people in our community who don't know Jesus. And we need to plant churches all around the world. And it's not about me, and if you don't use me, that's okay. Because what I want is your ambition, not mine. And if you're going to increase, even if I decrease, that's okay because my focus is your ambition because I'm satisfied in you. Can you say, God, make me a success? God, give me this. But it's for you, not for me. And so if you pass me by and you do it with somewhere else, that's okay because I found what I have and what I need, and what my soul's been searching for in Christ. You see, for the first time in my life, I've begun to be freed for godly ambitions instead of selfish ones. And that's happened by grounding my soul in Christ and finding in him what I had once found in selfish ambition. You can be free too. You can. It's by receiving what Christ has offered to you as a gift and by embracing that. Everything your soul searches for is in Christ. If you will ground your soul in that, you'll be freed for earth-changing, family-altering, eternity-shifting ambitions for Jesus. All of our campuses, why don't you bow your heads with me if you would. I wonder if, I'm certainly not trying to give too high an estimation of my preaching abilities here, but I wonder if there's somebody in here, maybe some man or woman, who for the first time says, you know what, I finally understand what has been driving my life. I understand now why I've alienated relationships. I understand why my home is wrecked. I understand why I've been working and working and working and never able to find contentment. I understand that now because for the first time I see that what I've been looking for, Christ has offered to me as a gift. The gospel, see, is that you can't earn a place with God. And that's what your soul craves. You can't earn a place with God. God gave it to you as a gift when Jesus came and he lived the life you were supposed to live and then died to death. You've been condemned to die. 
offered it to you not because you're worthy, because you are not, but offered it to you as a gift to all who would repent and believe. Repent means that you surrender yourself to Jesus. Believe means that you receive what he has done. If you've never repented and believed, it, it, it would be voiced in a prayer like this, and I would tell you to pray it there from your heart. Lord Jesus, I surrender all of me to you. And Lord Jesus, I believe I receive your offer to save me. You pray that in your own words. Maybe you are a believer. And maybe you just need to reground your soul in the gift righteousness of Christ. Trust him. Revel in his grace. Rest in his grace. Rest in his sovereign protection. Ground your soul in Christ. Father, I pray first for those who are making a first-time decision to trust you today. I pray that they would not leave today without talking to that person who brought them. Father, I pray that they would have to settle before they walk off our campuses. And Father, I pray secondly for us to be able to ground ourselves in Jesus so that we could dream great things for you. We could dream about our city. We could dream about the world. But it would be about Christ's kingdom and not about ours. Lord Jesus, we are satisfied in you. You are what our soul craves and what we need. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.